Uh, while uh, we are exploring once again uh, our time in uh, Jeremiah, it's been a few weeks since we've been at it. A couple of things have happened in the meantime, but I think uh, we can get back into it. I trust that you will. If you have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to uh, open it to around chapter 36 or so in the book of Jeremiah. One of the reasons why I love Jeremiah is uh, not just for the message that God communicates to his people through Jeremiah, but uh, because it's so personal with him. Uh, that's why he's called the weeping prophet. He's personally invested in everything that uh, God asks him to do. Uh, some of it's not particularly pleasant. A lot of it's not particularly pleasant, but he's willing to go through a great deal of his own personal suffering in order to communicate what God has for him. And uh, it strikes me as uh, making him uh, much more real and accessible as a person when we read uh, the book of Jeremiah. Another reason why I love the book of Jeremiah is, is because of that fact, uh, we can go beyond sometimes uh, the actual sort of instruction that God gives through Jeremiah uh, to look at the characters of the people involved. And that's kind of where we are this evening. This is sort of a character study uh, this evening of the book of Jeremiah we, as we start to explore the nature of uh, some of the people that he uh, engaged with. Uh, sometimes we're enemies of, uh, but also sometimes supporters of Jeremiah. We start to get a picture of some of the characters involved in the life of Jeremiah. And uh, the reason I sort of set that up that way is because if you try to read through the, the book of Jeremiah and expect it to be chronological, you'll be disappointed. It isn't always chronological. Let me give you an example. There are a number of times in which he sort of does flashbacks. So, for instance, in, in chapter 34 of, of Jeremiah, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is laying siege on Jerusalem, and Zedekiah is the king. And during chapter 34, he enacts what's called the Emancipation Covenant. We'll say more about that in a few moments, but the basic idea is that in chapter 34, Zedekiah is the king. Zedekiah was the last king of Judah. He was the king when uh, Jerusalem fell. Then in chapter 35, uh, we move back to the days of Jehoiakim. That's at least 10 years earlier. And so chapter 34 actually takes place after chapter 35. That's why you sort of have to be a little careful about the chronology. Uh, chapter 36 is also about Jehoiakim. That was the other king for, who lasted about 11 years in, in Jerusalem. That's the episode of the scrolls that we'll consider in a few moments. And then it jumps into chapter 37, and we're back to Zedekiah again. So it sort of back, jumps back and forth between these two periods of time. In chapter 37, there's the lifting of the, of the siege for a brief moment, the first imprisonment of Jeremiah. Then in chapter 38, Zedekiah is still on the throne. Jeremiah's second imprisonment in the cistern takes place, and then in chapter 39 is the fall of Jerusalem. So essentially, uh, Jeremiah, uh, or whoever's managing his editorship, essentially is putting together things more topically than chronologically. And there's an, some advantages in that. It enables us to see some striking contrasts, some contrasts between people and some contrasts in character. And the first contrast we're going to look at this evening is the contrast between Jehoiakim and Jeremiah. In chapter 36, uh, Jeremiah appears to be under a great deal of pressure of some sort, probably from Jehoiakim. 
uh, who, uh, because Jeremiah couldn't really carry out his public ministry. God tells Jeremiah to dictate messages on a scroll and dictate them to his secretary, Baruch. And from the time of uh, Josiah until the present, he has been doing this, and the book of Jeremiah, first edition, is produced. Uh, the word, the idea of a first edition will make sense in, a, in just a moment. Uh, as Jeremiah writes this first edition of his material, there's still a possibility at this particular period of time for Judah to repent and avoid the destruction that God has promised. In 605 uh, BC, uh, that was the year the Babylonians defeated the Egyptians at Carchemish. Uh, he tells Baruch to read the scroll in the house of the Lord. And so Baruch took the scroll of Jeremiah and he read that during the fast days when a people from around Judea had come to the temple. And one of the people who heard was the son of one of the officials, a man named Micaiah, son of Gemariah. And Micaiah went and told his father in the scribe's chamber, along with a bunch of other officials in the king's house. And the officials send for the scroll, and Baruch then read it to them. So you see, they had a grapevine then too. It worked out pretty well, almost as well as the grapevine at Shell Point. Anyway, the officials heard the word of Jeremiah, and they were afraid. And they actually demonstrated some genuine concern for the word that Jeremiah was speaking. But they also realized the sensitivity of the message. And so they told Baruch and Jeremiah to hide themselves. The officials then told the king about the words that uh, Jeremiah had written and Baruch had delivered. And the king then sent for the scroll and had it read to him. And we pick up the story in chapter 36 of Jeremiah in verse 21. And the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll and he took it from the chamber of Elishama the secretary, and Jehudi read it in the, to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. As Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot. And the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Even when Elnathan and Deliah and Gemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiel, the king's son, and Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Adil to seize Baruch the secretary and Jeremiah the prophet, but the Lord hid them. Just imagine the king of Israel and his cold-hearted rejection of the word of God. Uh, there was this symbolic disposal of the word of God by burning. Uh, Philip Ryken said as he sat warming himself by the fire, Jehoiakim used the word of God for fuel. There was this lack of emotion or fear of God in the rejection of the word of God on the part of Jehoiakim. There was the outright stupidity of his action. He had been warned by God about this. J.I. Packer writes, Jehoiakim burns God's word, ignoring its warning. That's like getting out of a car to destroy a bridge out sign and doing it at one's own peril. 
And there, of course, was the audacity of Jehoiakim's action. Uh, Philip Ryken again said, the shocking thing was not so much Jehoiakim's stupidity as his audacity. Jehoiakim was casual, almost nonchalant in his defiance of God's word. The arrogance, the contempt, the insolence of the man. He should have rent his garment in repentance. Instead, he turned a deaf ear to his counselors. He had an injury to insult by calling for the arrest of God's prophet. And so there was the rejection of the pleading of the officials not to burn it. He was determined to arrest Baruch and Jeremiah and do away with the messengers of God. That's always the way it happens. You get rid of the messenger to get rid of the message. Now, the official's response, interestingly, represented the way the word of God should be received. Uh, the officials actually heard the word of God, they feared the word of God, and they shared the word of God. Isn't that what you're supposed to do when you hear the word of God? But in spite of the fact that uh, they did that, it, they knew it was bad news. And so they not only did that with the word of God, they did it with the bad news word of God. Uh, we are always happy to share good news, but not necessarily bad news. Jeremiah, of course, as you know, has been given the task of representing the bad news side of things a lot more than the good news side of things. It's interesting that when you think about the officials who are in this, because we're sort of doing a character study, and you can not only look at the character of Jehoiakim as well as Jeremiah, but you can also look at these officials. There was a family heritage that actually uh, played a part in how these officials actually responded to the word of God. Micaiah was one of them. He was the grandson of Shaphan, and Shaphan was the secretary of state under Josiah, the last good king of Israel. And he was there when the book of the law was discovered, and Shaphan had read it to Josiah. So Shaphan was a good father, evidently. His son Ahikam supported Jeremiah so that he wouldn't be handed over to the people, according to Jeremiah 26. His son Elasa carried Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in, in, in Babylonian, uh, Babylonia in Jeremiah 29. And his son then, Gemariah, took Jeremiah's scroll to Jehoiakim. And so there was sort of a family history that provided the right thing to do with the word of God. Micaiah's cousin, Gedaliah, who was the son of Ahikam, rescued Jeremiah when Jerusalem fell in uh, chapter 39. Eventually, he became the governor of the Jewish remnant in Jerusalem. So that family history helped support and build a certain kind of character in the officials, even though Jehoiakim wouldn't pay any attention to them. Now, in contrast to the way Jehoiakim dealt with the word of God, we have Jeremiah's faithfulness to the word of God. Remember how Jeremiah was called in, his, in the first place to be a prophet. In chapter 1 of Jeremiah, beginning in verse 7, we read these words. But the Lord said to me, do not say, I am only a youth. For to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overflow, overthrow, to build and to plant. So two-thirds of the message of Jeremiah that he was to deliver on the, on the part of God were negative messages, were messages of judgment. Then picking it up in verse 17, But you, dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. 
And I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. And then following that call, Jeremiah exhibited decades of faithfulness to that message. Uh, he provided what was identified earlier in our series as a covenant lawsuit. Israel and Judah have broken their marriage covenant with Yahweh. He called the people to repentance, and he called all the people to repentance. He called kings to repentance, officials to repentance, priests and the whole people to repentance. He accused them of religious hypocrisy in a temple sermon. He accused them of listening to false prophets. He accused them of idolatry. He would do anything. He would use object lessons. He, he had a linen girdle that he wore and hid in the, in the dirt. Uh, he used a wooden yoke. He smashed pottery. He would do anything to communicate the word of God to these people. He likened Judah to the northern kingdom of Israel, which had already been overrun by the Assyrians, and they should have profited from the object lesson of their northern counterparts. And Jeremiah, in addition, wept over the implications of his prophecy. It was personal with him. And so uh, this is how the word of God affected Jeremiah in chapter 8, verse 18 and following. Uh, we read, my joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold, the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Jeremiah took it personally. He withstood persecution and mockery and beatings and imprisonment, all because he was faithful to the word of God. What a contrast we have between Jeremiah and Jehoiakim, who played so fast and loose with the word. Jeremiah even struggled with depression on account of the Word of God. Maybe that makes him a modern person. Depression is so rampant in our age. He says in Jeremiah 15:10, Woe is me, my mother, that you bore me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land. I have not lent, nor have I borrowed, yet all of them curse me. In chapter 20, verse 14, it says, Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, a son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon, because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave, and her womb forever great. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Have you ever had that kind of depression? Some of you likely have had that kind. He even got to the point of quitting his faithfulness to the word of God, led him to that place in chapter 20, uh, verse 7. We read, O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. 
For whenever I speak, I cry out violence and destruction, for the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. And brought him to the place of saying, I'm not going to do this anymore. He says in verse 9, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name. I'm done. No more prophet stuff from me. And he said that, he said, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. He tried to quit, but he couldn't, because the fire was in his belly, and he had to speak the word of God, or it will eat him from the inside out. That's Jeremiah's faithfulness to the word. In spite of depression, in spite of his persecution, in spite of the difficulty of the message, he was willing to deliver it in contrast with Jehoiakim, who wanted to dismiss the message and the messenger and destroy it. There's some irony in this, by the way. In chapter 36 of Jeremiah, verse 27 and following, we read this. Now, the, after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Baruch wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Take another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim and the king of Judah had burned. And concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you shall say, Thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll, saying, Why have you written it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will cut off from it man and beast? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat by day and the frost by night. And I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity. I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, but they would not hear. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch, the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. You see, dear friends, the irony is that the word of God cannot be thwarted even by a king. Philip Riken said the words in Jeremiah's book are not words about God, they are words from God which is why they will never lose their power. And so you have the first edition of Jeremiah's book destroyed, but the second edition was then reestablished, recomposed with additions. And some of those additions that were included included the condemnation of Jehoiakim. That was the irony of it. Jehoiakim tried to get rid of the message. He got the message all over again in addition to his own personal condemnation. Riken says, sometime in the 21st century, the Gospels of Jesus Christ will be available in every one of the more than 6,000 known languages in the world. And sometime after that, the prophecies of Jeremiah, the very words of Jehoiakim cut from the scroll and burned in the firepot, will be read around the globe by every tribe and people and nation, including this one right here. Jehoiakim's legacy was one of cold-hearted spiritual deadness. He was a ruthless self-interested ruler. Now, in spite of their extraordinary differences and contrasts between Jehoiakim and Jeremiah, I have to tell you that Jeremiah had his, his issues. He was not perfect. Uh, chapter 38, for instance, verse uh, 14, we pick up an interesting story. Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet. This is 
when we shift over to the Zedekiah part of the story, and received him at the third entrance of the temple of the Lord, the king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you a question. Hide nothing from me. And Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, if I tell you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you counsel, will you not listen to me? Then King Zedekiah swore secretly to Jeremiah, as the Lord lives who made our souls, I will not put you to death or deliver you into the hands of these men who seek your life. Uh, Jeremiah then prophesies destruction, he urges repentance, and he stipulates consequences. Then picking it up in verse 24, then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, let no one know of these words and you shall not die. If the officials hear that I have spoken with you and come to you and say to you, tell us what you said to the king and what the king said to you, hide nothing from us and we will not put you to death, then you shall say to them, I made a humble plea to the king that he would not send me back to the house of Jonathan to die there. It's the prison where he was. Then all the officials came to Jeremiah and asked him, and he answered them as the king had instructed him. So they stopped speaking with Jeremiah for the conversation had not been overheard. In other words, Jeremiah lied to them. Ah, he's not perfect after all, is he? It's kind of interesting. Jeremiah has been likened in the New Testament to Jesus. We find, for instance, in Matthew chapter 16, that great place when Peter makes his wonderful confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, we find in chapter 16 of Matthew, verse 13, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And, and they said, some say John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, and others, what, Jeremiah. Jeremiah, one of the, or one of the prophets. So Jeremiah had some things in common with Jesus. There was a commitment to the word of God on the part of both of them. There was faithfulness in preaching on the part of both of them. There was grief and sorrow over sin and the spiritual condition of the people of Judah for both of them. There was a great deal of suffering for both of them. But Jeremiah was not Jesus. Jesus was unique. Jesus was without sin. Uh, perfection is not the issue with Jeremiah. The fundamental commitment was to the word, however, and there was something inside Jeremiah which drove him to faithfulness that was severely lacking in Jehoiakim. So that's the first contrast, Jehoiakim and Jeremiah, quite a remarkable uh, set of differences. Another set of contrasts that come out in this portion of the book of Jeremiah is the, <coughs> pardon me, is the contrast between Zedekiah and the Rechabites. The Rechabites. Uh, there was what was called the Emancipation Covenant that Zedekiah enacted. Uh, it was during the siege, the first siege of Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar was bearing down on Jerusalem, things looked very bleak. And we pick up the story in chapter 34 of Jeremiah, verse eight. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation to them that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. And they obeyed all the officials and all the people who had entered into the covenant that everyone should set free his slave, male or female, so that they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free. So this was the first emancipation proclamation, essentially, before Abraham Lincoln did it. Uh, but there was one that Zedekiah actually did. But the text continues, unfortunately. Verse 11, but afterward they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free and brought them into subjection as slaves. 
Now, the, the likely reason that uh, Zedekiah would do this in the first place was they needed freed slaves to help with the defense when things looked really bad. But when the pressure was off and Nebuchadnezzar sort of took the siege off for a period of time, then they took back their male and female slaves that they had set free. And they broke the covenant. They reneged on the covenant. And so this was Zedekiah's way of dealing with covenants. He viewed it as convenient to fulfill the covenant, but when it was inconvenient, then the covenant it went away. He didn't fulfill it. So Zedekiah comes across as a vacillating kind of king. Chapter 37 begins this way, Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, who Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah, reigned instead of Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. King Zedekiah sent Jehuchal, son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Messiah, to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, Please pray for us to the Lord our God. Interestingly, even though he didn't follow Jeremiah's words, he still wanted Jeremiah to pray for him. You know people like that? Don't really want the word of God, but they would be happy to have you pray for them. That's Zedekiah. Jeremiah left Jerusalem then to go home when the siege was lifted. Uh, the officials actually misunderstood Jeremiah's actions. They thought he was defecting. They arrested him and beat Jeremiah. They jailed him in the house of Jonathan the scribe in a dungeon that was in his house. In chapter 37, verse 17 is where we are at the moment. King Zedekiah sent for him and received him. The king questioned him secretly in his house and said, Is there any word from the Lord? Isn't that interesting? Zedekiah, who really cares little for the word of the Lord, asks him about that. Jeremiah said, There is. Then he said, You shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. <laughs> and Jeremiah also said to King Zedekiah, what, uh, what wrong have I done to you or your servant or this people that you put me in prison? In other words, he gives bad news and says, by the way, why'd you stick me in here? Where are your prophets who prophesied to you, saying, the king of Babylon will not come against you and against this land? Now here, please, O my lord the king, let my humble plea come before you, and do not send me back to the house of Jonathan the secretary, lest I die there. So King Zedekiah gave orders, and they committed Jeremiah to the court of the guard. And a loaf of bread was given him daily from the baker's street until all the bread of the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. So it's interesting, isn't it? Zedekiah still wanted to hear from Jeremiah. And at Jeremiah's pleading, he removed him from the dungeon, put him in the courthouse of the guard, and gave him rations that might have been still available during this portion of the siege. Chapter 38 begins this way. Now Shephatiah, son of Matan, Gedaliah, son of Pasher, Jukal, the son of Shelemiah, and Pasher, the son of Melchijah, heard the words that Jeremiah was saying to all the people. By the way, you have my commitment never to ask any one of you to read this passage in public. You won't have to deal with the names. And if you wonder whether or not I'm uh, pronouncing them correctly, I have no idea. And it, it seems to me to be the way they should be. Who knows? Verse 2, thus says the Lord, who says in this city, uh, who stays in this city, he who stays in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. He shall have his life as a prize of war and live. Thus says the Lord, this city shall surely be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and taken. Then the official said to the king, let this man be put to death. 
for he's weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. King Zedekiah said, Behold, he is in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. Isn't that a really strong leadership, isn't it? Zedekiah said, Okay, whatever you guys want. King Zedekiah said, Oh, so they took Jeremiah, cast him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. Lots of mud around these parts last week, wasn't there? You can imagine that in a cistern. So the angered officials then convinced Zedekiah that Jeremiah needed to be removed, and so Zedekiah responds really haplessly. He allows them to do what they want. He has no courage with respect to Jeremiah, and he's put in the cistern to die. Verse 7 of chapter 38, when Abed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate. Abed-Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, my lord, the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern, and he will die there of hunger, for there's no bread left in the city. And the king commanded Ebed-Milech, the Ethiopian, take 30 men with you from here and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. This is the king that just said that you guys could put him in there, and now he's going to save him. Ebed-Milech took men with him and went to the house of the king to a wardrobe in the storehouse and took from there old rags and worn out clothes and cloths and let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. Then Ebed-Milech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. And Jeremiah did so. Then they drew Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. An interesting story, isn't it? Ebed-Milech convinces, this eunuch convinces Zedekiah that Jeremiah has been wrongly imprisoned and left to die, even though, uh, even though Zedekiah knew exactly what those people had done to him. And so Zedekiah orders to allow Ebed-Milech to rescue Jeremiah. Verse 14 continues, King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and received him at the third entrance of the temple of the Lord. And the king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you a question, hide nothing from me. So then he, asked, he invites Jeremiah to talk to him again. Amazing, isn't it? Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I tell you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you counsel, will you, you will not listen to me. Then King Zedekiah swore secretly to Jeremiah, As the Lord lives who made our souls, I will not put you to death or deliver you into the hand of the men who seek your life. So fascinating, isn't it? Zedekiah still wants a word from Jeremiah. Jeremiah doesn't trust Zedekiah, however, but he gets assurances from him that he won't turn Jeremiah over to his enemies. Verse 17, then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, if you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life will be spared, and the city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city shall be given into the hands of the Chaldeans. And they shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hand. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I'm afraid of the Judeans who have deserted to the Chaldeans, lest I be handed over to them, and they deal cruelly with me. And Jeremiah said, You shall not be given to them. Obey now the voice of the Lord in what I say to you, and it shall be well with you, and your life will be spared. 
But if you refuse to surrender, this is the vision which the Lord has shown me. Behold, all the women left in the house of the king of Judah were being led out to the officials of the king of Babylon and were saying, your trusted friends have deceived you and prevailed against you. Now that your feet are sunk in the mud, they turn away from you. All your wives and your sons shall be led out to the Chaldeans and you yourself shall not escape from their hand, but shall be seized by the king of Babylon and this city shall be burned with fire. So Zedekiah is afraid of the Jews if he surrenders, and he's afraid of the people if he decides to go into be with the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. And Jeremiah has to reassure him. Verse 24, then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, let no one know of these words and you shall not die. If the officials hear that I've, that I've spoken with you and come to you and say to you, let us or tell us what you said to the king, and what the king said to you, hide nothing from us, and we will not put you to death. Then you shall say to them, I made a humble plea to the king that he would not send me back to the house of Jonathan to die there. So Zedekiah is afraid of the men who are Jeremiah's enemies. He seems to be a king who has actually no authority left to do anything significant. Verse 27, then all the officials came to Jeremiah, asked him, he answered them as the king had instructed him. So they stopped speaking with him for the conversation had not been overheard, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard until the day that Jerusalem was taken. Jeremiah did what he was told, as we mentioned a few moments ago. He basically lied to the enemies. So what kind of man, would you say, was Zedekiah? Well, the first thing that we recognize, he was a covenant breaker. Um, it's interesting, you know, we've asked the question or raised the issue, why does chapter 35 follow chapter 34? That's not a numerical question, because why do we have the story of chapter 35, which takes place during the time of Jehoiakim, following chapter 34, which is a story of the time of Zedekiah when he enacted the Emancipation Covenant and then reneged. Chapter 35, as we observe, predates 34. Well, chapter 35 says this, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, go to the house of the Rechabites and speak with them and bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers, then offer them wine to drink. So I took Jezaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habaziniah, and his brothers and all his sons and the whole house of the Rechabites, and I brought them to the house of the Lord into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, the man of God, which was near the chamber of the officials, above the chamber of Messiah, the son of Shalom, keeper of the threshold. Then I set before the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups, and I said to them, drink wine. So what in the world is going on here? You have the story of the Rechabites, and it's stuck in the middle of this story between Zedekiah and Jehoiakim. Well, the Rechabites were kind of like what we would know of as sort of grubby nomads. And it figures in here, just to hang on, keep your seatbelts buckled and I'll tell you how this makes sense. They were sort of grubby nomads. They were refugees due to the encroachment of Babylon and they had sought refuge in Jerusalem during the time when the Babylonians were pressing in from the north. They were what we might call country bumpkins coming to the city. And Jeremiah threw a party for them, but there was only one, that's the other Jeremiah, only one commodity for this party, there was wine. And that was a commodity that the Rechabites had vowed never to partake. 
It was out of place to begin with. In other words, they're throwing a cocktail party, and it would be the most awkward of cocktail parties. Uh, REO White observes as a commentator, says the Rechabites were a family guild who worshiped God strictly after the manner of pilgrim patriarchs living as nearly as possible in the nomadic fashion of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Crops, vineyards, houses, towns, and cities all tied men to one place, they said, and so bred luxury, strife of possession, materialism, worship of fertility gods, and all manner of soft, lazy extravagance, very different from the hard, disciplined life of herdsmen under the desert stars. Isn't that interesting? Philip Riken says the Rechabites were reactionaries. They were the counterculture movement of the divided kingdom. Perhaps they were something like a cross between the hippies of the 1960s and the old order of Amish in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Imagine straw hats and tie-dyed robes. Think horse-drawn buggies decorated with giant pastel flowers. Like some hippies, they were a tight-knit community constantly on the move. Like the Amish, they separated themselves from the pleasures of popular culture. Chapter 35, verse 6. But they answered, We will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, You shall not drink wine, neither you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house, you shall not sow seed, you shall not plant nor have a vineyard, but you shall live in tents all your days that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, and all that he commanded us to drink no wine all our days, ourselves, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, and not to build houses to dwell in, have no vineyard or field or seed, but we have lived in tents and have obeyed and done all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against the land, we said, come and let us go to Jerusalem, or fear the army of the Chaldeans and the army of the Assyrians, so we are living in Jerusalem. So despite the awkwardness, the Rechabites remained true to their tradition and uh, explained its origin. It's remarkable, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, was one of the 7,000 in Israel who did not bow the knee to Baal during the time of Elijah. Uh, who was, the, of course, the, the mighty man who rode in the chariot was Jonadab when Jehub killed Ahab's family. So that was the history behind these people. Jonadab had been dead for 250 years when the Rechabites showed up for happy hour in Jerusalem. Riken says the Rechabite way of life had been out of fashion in Israel since the day Joshua crossed the Jordan River. But they remained faithful to the covenant they had made. So you see, chapters 34 and 35 fit together as a contrast between a covenant breaker and covenant keepers. That's what this is about. Nothing that required the, the Rechabites to refrain from owning land or planting vineyards or drinking wine, but their families had vowed to adopt the lifestyle, and in spite of its difficulties and in spite of the awkwardness in the cocktail party, they would fulfill their vows. And Jeremiah makes the point and he uses the example of the Rechabites as an object lesson. And so we pick it up in chapter 35, verse 12. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction and listen to my words, declares the Lord? The command that Jonadab, the son of Rechab, gave to his sons to drink no wine has been kept. 
and they drink none to this day, for they have obeyed their father's command. I have spoken to you persistently, but you have not listened to me. I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently, saying, I now turn every one of you from, or turn now every one of you from his evil way, amend your deeds, and do not go after other gods to serve them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to you and your fathers, but you did not incline your ear or listen to me. Sons of Jonadab, son of Rechab, have kept the command that their father gave them, but this people has not obeyed me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I'm bringing upon Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, because I've spoken to them, and they've not listened. I've called to them, they've not answered. But to the house of the Rechabites, Jeremiah said, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have obeyed the command of Jonadab your father and kept all the precepts and done all that he commanded you. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab the son of Rechab shall never lack a man to stand before me. That's the contrast. Contrast between a covenant breaker and the covenant keepers. And that's why the story is laid out that way. Zedekiah has been called the marshmallow man. Eugene Peterson said, nothing lasted long with Zedekiah. The man was a marshmallow. He received impressions from anyone who pushed hard enough. When the pressure was off, he gradually resumed his earlier state, ready for the next impression. In contrast to Jeremiah, who was formed within by obedience to God and faith in God, an iron pillar, Zedekiah took on whatever shape the circumstances required. Riken says, Zedekiah was vulnerable to peer pressure. Whoever had the ear of the king seemed to steer the ship of state. When Nebuchadnezzar first came to capture Jerusalem in 597 BC, Zedekiah was all for the Babylonians. In fact, he became their puppet king over the city. But once they went back home, he started listening to his advisors who wanted to rebel. So Zedekiah reverted his, reversed his foreign policy. He also vacillated in his domestic policy. First, the abolitionists persuaded him to make an emancipation proclamation, but then the slaveholders talked him into revoking it. Riken says the king had equal difficulty making up his mind about Jeremiah. He sent him to the dungeon, but then he took him out and placed him under house arrest. He refused to listen to him, but he also wanted to hear what he had to say. He allowed others to put Jeremiah in the cistern to die, but then empowered a Gentile eunuch named Ebed-Melech to convince him that he was wrong, to rescue him, and to place him in more favorable circumstances. Riken says Zedekiah's sin was living by his fears rather than by faith. His sin was not trusting God when he was afraid. His sin was keeping his fears to himself rather than taking them to the Lord. Once he admitted, I am afraid, he found himself unable to do anything else. He was paralyzed by fear. So we have all kinds of contrasts in this section. The contrasts are obvious. You have Jeremiah and the Rechabites and Ebed-Melech, likely under great scrutiny and danger in trying to save Jeremiah was Ebed-Melech. They're doing what was right, uh, even though it was costly to each one of them. But they were doing what was right in the long run. Chapter 38, verse 16 says this, then King Zedekiah swore secretly to Jeremiah, as the Lord lives, who made our souls, I will not put you to death or deliver you into the hand of the men who seek your life. And Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, if you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life will be spared. and The city shall not be burned with fire, 
and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the king, to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape their hand. It's the third time I've read that passage. That was the passage that was fulfilled because Zedekiah refused to respond to the word of God. So as you think about those characters, who would you most like to be? Would you like to be like Jehoiakim with his arrogance and his stupidity, Zedekiah with his vacillation and waftiness, or Jeremiah and the Rechabites and Ebed-Melech who were faithful to fulfill the calling that God gave to them? That's the essence of what we see in this section of the book of Jeremiah. Father, we're thankful that you give us these pictures of what it means to follow you and what it means to reject you. And we ask, Father, that you would enable us to be faithful to the word of God, that we will be responsive to the things that you have for us, and that we would find in our obedience that we are satisfied to be among your people and in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.